Hi, I'm Fiona. And I'm Cam. And you're listening to the Over the Fence podcast by Farmers for Climate Action. Today we're talking to Kevin Hogan. Kevin is the member for PAGE in Northern New South Wales and is in the National Party. Along with being an MP, Kevin and his family run a cattle property. Recently, he went to the Glasgow Climate Summit as part of a delegation from Australia. As always, don't forget to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to it. You can get in touch with us via email or over social media. Our email is info at farmersforclimateaction.org.au. Here's our interview with Kevin. So Kevin, you grew up in regional South Australia. Whereabouts in particular? And what did you like about growing up in the bush? Well, look, I grew up in a a community called Port Augusta, which is sort of mid-north South Australia on the um, Spencer's Gulf at the very top. Community of about 15,000 people, but relatively isolated. So the nearest communities were places like Wayala and Port Pirie, which were about an hour away each side. So it was, you know, it was a very tight community. I loved growing up there. You know, I felt very much there's this term we have now, belonging. Um, I felt very much that I belonged in that community. My family were very involved in the community. Um, you know, we, I was very active in sport. I mean, it's a, you know, there was limited options, not as many options as the city of what you could do in a place like that. But look, I felt very privileged to grow up there. I felt very lucky. I belonged in the community. Uh, my parents were quite religious as well. I was a member of the Catholic you know, community, my school community, but also many sporting communities. So I loved growing up there and felt very lucky to grow up there. So what did you do between then finishing high school and politics? What was your career? Yeah, so I'm, I was born in 1963, so I'm 58 this year. And so I left school in 1980. And um, like many of my generation, I, I finished year 12, but I was the first of my family to have a go. I have three elder siblings and I was the first of my family. Neither of my parents nor any of my siblings went to university. So I was the first um, to go to university. So I went to Adelaide um, to go to university. That was quite difficult. My father actually, unfortunately, lost his job when I was in year 12. So um, money was at a premium. So I worked for a year at the end of school at the local Commonwealth Bank in Port Augusta. Um, saved up as much money as I could. So I had to sort of, they did, they were able to assist a bit, but I essentially had to find my way through university. So I um, worked for a year to help me do that. Did a three-year economics degree at Flinders University. And then to cut a very, you know, long story short, I ended up getting a job in what was then being deregulated with the financial industry, the financial markets. And I ended up in Sydney um, in the financial markets where Eventually, I became a bond trader at a very young age um, and was, you know, was doing, did quite well financially in that sense because that was a very lucrative industry and lived there, lived in Sydney for 12 or 13 years, used to do Sky News a lot on, um, you know, economic updates about what had happened overnight, et cetera, for the, you know, Dow, inflation rates, et cetera. So I did that for a few years, which introduced me to the media, which was fun. But then I met my wife in that industry as well, and we started having children in Sydney. Um, and then, like in the, in the late 90s, so I'd been in Sydney for about 13 or 14 years, um, we had our second child. Um, we ended up having three children, but we decided that we wanted to bring up our children in the country. We were both from regional Australia. My wife grew up near Lismore in, South, in New South Wales. And um, so we said, OK, let's go to the country. So we were very open about which one we went to. Well, I was very open. I would have loved to have gone back to Port Augusta. My wife would have been happy with either as well. But again, long story short, 
Um, I went back and felt this need to be of service. I mean, while bond trading and money market managing was fun, I felt I needed to do something that was more of service to the community and to the people I was with. So um, I became a school teacher and we moved back to, we live halfway between Lismore and Byron Bay on the New South Wales North Coast and Northern Rivers. And that's how we ended up here. The rainfall difference between Port Augusta and the Northern Rivers <laughs> must be huge. Well, you know, very good point. And I, I have friends, um, especially when they first used to come to visit me on the Northern Rivers, and I would say, you know, see this garden, see all these plants. We don't water them. We don't have a sprinkler. And they were like, really? You don't have a sprinkler and it's this green all year round? So, um, but yeah, look, both beautiful parts of the world, but very different in rainfall. So how did you end up in politics and why was it the National Party that you ended up joining? Sure. So, yeah, so when I came back here, as I said, I was a school teacher for around um, seven or eight years in a, a community in some ways different but in some ways similar in size and other other ways casino um, um, I don't live in casino I live between as I said Lismore and Byron Bay but casino is about 40 minutes from my home and um, I school I taught school there for about eight or nine years um, my children were starting to grow up um, they were obviously very young and I had we had a third child when we moved here uh, but I started to become very involved as my parents were when I was growing up in our community and you know, I was coaching sporting teams and president of sporting clubs and involved in a local council issue with my community, et cetera, et cetera. So I started to meet politicians and um, I got involved with the Nationals primarily. I like the fact that they're primarily involved with regional Australia. I mean, all of our MPs live in the country and the regions, and that was important to me. Whenever we go to the party room meeting in Canberra, we are all from the regions and it's a very big focus of everything we talk about we talk about it the, through the perception in the eyes of the regions. And I like that. So that was one of the primary reasons I joined there. Kevin, what's been your biggest achievement as a politician so far? Well, look, you know, in some ways they're really small ones. Um, you know, I'd like to say that, you know, we've, I've obviously been involved in big picture discussions. So, you know, given the, com the conversation we're talking about, we're talking about, you know, climate action, etc. I was integral to make sure we agreed to net zero by 2050. So, you know, I like the fact within our party women and a coalition government. But sometimes they're the really small things. There was a woman I remember once who had a, a face disfigurement and um, she needed some special help to get compensation to have a, a procedure that was considered cosmetic, but it was really important to her and she couldn't afford it. And I went to the health minister, Greg Hunt, um, and as an act of grace, he was able to approve it within a few weeks and that changed that woman's life. So, you know, those type of things, which you never talk about really to the press or you, they're not media driven things. There's some things you can do to help people on an individual basis that are really special. And of course, as a, as a coalition MP or as a regional MP, you know, I love the infrastructure spending. We've had, you know, unprecedented in, up in my region and lots of others, um, infrastructure upgrades, infrastructure spending in the regions in the last seven or eight years. And I'm very proud of some of that. Kevin, you said you played a, um, a key role in getting support for the net zero goal. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, well, look, there's, you know, I, I think the, with this issue, you know, we don't talk about, I mean, there are some notable exceptions, but they're the minority. We don't talk about climate change as whether it's fact or fiction. We talk about, you know, what is the best way for us as a country to do the important things that we need to do and what's the best mix of that. So, you know, that's what we talk about. We had the discussion a few months, a few weeks ago about that. Um, we had some, um, as Nats, we were given the plan, well, the plan. Um, we looked at it and I think as, you know, it wasn't necessarily reported this way, but I think we as responsible adults said, look, we want to look at it. 
and we don't want to agree with it today. Um, and we took it away as a group. I was part of a four-person subcommittee, if you like, where we collated a lot of the thoughts of our MPs and other stakeholders. Um, we went away. We had some, you know, adjustments made to it um, and some caveats to protect and to, well, there's lots of advantages and opportunities for Regional Australians, but there's also some threats to Regional Australia. And we wanted some security around what some of those threats may be. Um, and we negotiated what I thought was a good agreement for Regional Australia and the country. How did you go about balancing the needs of different constituents and different like parts of your party as well in that process? Yeah, look, it's a really good question because we all bring our own biases and our own perceptions to this as well, to any subject. And I don't, and I don't think an individual MP should negate that. I mean, you know, you have been elected and as an individual, you're there representing, you know, not only your community, but what your own beliefs and thoughts and perceptions are. Look, I think I, I weighed up to what is in the best interest, I think, of our country and the world, but also taking into account the threats and opportunities of my community and just making sure that I'm, that I'm comfortable balancing the threats with the opportunities and the threats that there may be for industries or people that we make sure we don't leave them behind. Yeah, it's quite a big job, actually. And on that, you recently went to the Glasgow Climate Summit, I believe. I did. Yeah, how was yeah, it? Look, oh, look, it was uh, a wonderful opportunity. I went as a guest of the Coalition for Conservation, um, as a guest for them. There were a number of us, um, politicians from different state jurisdictions, and also I went with um, three or four of my federal colleagues. And, look, we, we, it, was, it was a bit mixed. We went to COP26 for a day. We went to actually the, the venue itself and, and went around to the pavilions and spoke to a lot of different representatives of different countries, so it was good to be exposed for that. We then had a two-day conference ourselves just discussing um, with different experts around the field, uh, around the different fields of this for two days in Glasgow. We then went to Hull and had a tour around a wind tower manual assembly plant, which was fascinating to see that and had some presentations about wind power. Um, and we might come back to that later because I, my eyes were open to some of the opportunities for us with wind. We then went to London and, and spent time with some government ministers and MPs about where they're at, what they're doing. Other sorted meetings like with finance experts in this field um, and, other, and other stakeholders. So, no, very informative and very interesting trip. Can you tell us about what you learned at COP that you didn't know before? Well, you know, we... Yeah, well, look, I, I'm always a bit nervous talking about this because my knowledge sometimes, I'm very conscious, can be less than others. In, but as a politician, I find we can sometimes have a shallow knowledge of a lot of things. Um, a lot of people dive deeper into specific issues. But look, what I, I suppose the interesting thing that I learned, well, so I learned was, was, I suppose, my depth increased in, was um, we, we hear a lot about intermittency with renewables. So, you know, when we think about renewables in Australia, we talk a lot about solar, but we're one of the world leaders of so take up of solar, of solar power, which has been a big part of where we've got to already. And rooftop solar one and four in the country, which has been a wonderful story. Federal government, we subsidise that to a billion dollars per year. So we, are, we have a great take up of solar. It's working very well for us. Wind um, as well. But what, I've, what we saw in the UK, we were given some interesting presentations, is one of the way they're combating intermittency and the problems with that. You know, people always say, well, when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining, we need to have coverage over that. But there's been a, there's a big move right now, which I was, wasn't as aware of, was, is offshore wind. And what we're finding, you can model this, is offshore wind, that we're getting very clever at working out when, how and how much the wind blows, 
um, can be a great complement to solar um, when you're in the right places. So there's a lot of modelling going on over there. I think there's some great opportunities for us um, in Australia with offshore wind as well. And I've been having some chats with some different people since I've been back about that. So that was good. The hydrogen story I was more familiar with, um, but it was interesting to see where other people were at with hydrogen as well. So yeah, it was quite insightful. What do you see as the future of hydrogen in regional Australia? Because it's talked up a bit as a potential new industry in you know parts of regional New South Wales and Queensland. What's your understanding? Yeah, I, think it's a gr- I think it's a great opportunity. I mean, when we announced the, the plan that we announced um, about a month or two ago, now hydrogen obviously is a big part of that. Um, and I think everyone too is very aware that at the moment where, and this is not just our issue, this is the whole world issue, we're, we're moving to a place that we can, this can work. Um, hydrogen isn't quite there yet as are the intermittency variables that we spoke about before, battery storage, another one with um, that we need to make developments in. So, you know, I think that hydrogen, though, I think, you know, we're, you know, it's no secret with our plan. We're, 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 we're punting hydrogen. You know, we think there's some great opportunities there. Um, we think there's some great energy options to produce that hydrogen um, as well that we can, that we haven't harvested properly yet. And we think we can be an exporter of hydrogen. So you know, I think there's a lot of space there we can use. Sounds like you've come back with lots of great ideas, Kevin. How would you say you're thinking around the opportunity that comes with a shift to a low emissions future? How has that changed before you went to COP and now since you've returned? Well, look, I suppose it's interesting to get a different feel too. Like we were, we spent our whole time in the UK, so you're getting the UK flavour of this. And, you know, they've already, they've already legislated for some quite, well, we would probably say, you know, in our, where we are, aggressive um, ambitions, well, ambitious ambitions, I should probably say, um, with electric vehicles. Um, and they have a different makeup of geography that's not as challenging as what electric vehicles would be here in such a short time frame. But um, it was interesting, UK being obviously positioned to closely to Europe, the discussion there is much different than it is from our region. You know, I think the Southeast Asian region, you know, we, and that's how they're our neighbours, we aren't quite um, having the same conversations as much as they are. So it was good to get their flavour on that and, and good to get their perspective on that. Interesting. How do you see the climate discussion in Australia going over the next decade? We're sort of, it kind of feels as though we've gone through a very fractious period. And as you said before, there are, you know, there's not too many people in parliament. There are a few sort of voices there, but not too many who are deniers. And it seems like there's a, genuine consensus that this is a good for the country to act on it b there are jobs involved and c we can do it yeah and look i think you're right it's been a fractious public conversation and it's been a, a fractious media focus but we actually do and i'm as i know you would be aware and it was good to tell people when we we're over there now we have actually an okay story to tell too i mean we still have you know we have some hurdles to do our bit and to make sure we contribute in this. But, you know, as we know, we've met our 2020 targets. We know we're going to meet our 2030 targets. Now, you can argue that or not, not enough, but we're certainly going to not only meet but exceed our 2030 targets. We know that we've cut emissions more than countries, you know, comparable countries like, you know, New Zealand or Canada or Japan. We've actually done better than them. So we have it. Well, the, the public discussion has been very fractious and very divisive. Um, you know, we still have some run, really good runs on the board that we've done our bit, but, you know, the discussion going forward, I think given that now, if you like, what has been polarising in the past, that both sides of politics, if you like, are committed to a net zero by 2050, I think it makes it a less fractious 
conversation and debate because now it's just about how much, by when, and how do we do it rather than some of the other discussions. So I think that's a positive step. Do you think there will be any revisiting of that 2030 target? Look, I don't think so in the short term. I think the, the Prime Minister and others have made the point, look, we, we had our target set, uh, so we will... We'll, we'll, and we're going to... Um, I know it might sound almost facetious in some ways, but we'll, we'll exceed it, and that's great. What else would you like to see happen? So you're really interested in, obviously, the opportunities around wind. Are there any other strategies found about in, at COP that you might like to see happen here in Australia? Yeah, I think, I think, as I said before, I think the offshore wind was the big takeout for me. I mean, we'd obviously discussed hydrogen before we left. You know, as a, as a government, we've, we've had the hydrogen discussion, so I, I understood that, so I had my head around that. The offshore wind was a real eye-opener. But, you know, again, given that we're sort of talking about this too in the context of farmers and, and, and regions for stuff, I mean, there's a lot. We're, I've always been excited about it, but there's still some hurdles about the whole this, the whole soil carbon discussion, sequestration and all the things we've been talking about for many years, but there's a lot still to happen in that space um, for us to get comfortable and have, the again, the technology technological roadmap of how that's going to work and, you know, is that going to be, you know, I think there's some opportunities there for regional Australia, but I think that's the other area as well. You've been in Parliament for, I think, eight-ish years now. It's quite a long time to be in the one job. What, like, what excites you and keeps you getting up in the morning and keeps making you, as you said, politicians do actually work hard? Yeah, look, we do. I mean, I think, you know, and I can say this as a bipartisan statement, I mean, Good stories don't make good media. Um, so often you'll see in the media discussion about politics and politicians they ain't necessarily glowing. But look, 80 to 90% of politicians, and I know every federal politician in that building, I have the utmost respect for. I think they're good people and they work hard. And we often are together on joint parliamentary committees. We often travel together because we're doing, you know, if we have a parliamentary committee, we might be going somewhere as a group of people, seven or eight people, to look at something and to, and to investigate something. So you get to know people quite well over that. You know, I have a fellow Labor MP next door, and we often travel on the same plane and have a chat every time we go to and from, from Canberra. So they're good people. Um, so I love this job. I'm motivated. I'm highly energised by this job because I think it's a, it's a privilege to, and, and, a, and I have a lot of gratitude in having it because you know, I can wake up in a day, discuss things like this with you, can be talking to the Prime Minister tomorrow and be at the fate in my regional community, talking to mums and dads and children on the next day after that. And how lucky is that? And how, what, what great insight I have with that. I was always active in my community, but in this role, I get to know just about everybody. And you see so many inspiring people and stories that is completely motivating. I was down in the northern beaches of Coffs Harbour yesterday and um, met two or three young young business people who are starting a new business and doing things. And they, they, they're inspirational people and I have the privilege and pleasure to meet them. I think that's a great note to wrap it up on, Kevin. That is fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that experience with you. It's been so interesting to hear about what you've been up to and where you've come from. Um, and I look forward to hearing what happens next. Great. Well, look, great to chat to you. Thank you. It's been a joy for me this afternoon as well. Thank you for listening to our interview today. Don't forget to subscribe to Over the Fence and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more or getting involved with Farmers for Climate Action, you can visit our website at farmersforclimateaction.org.au. Otherwise, connect with us over social media. Catch you next time.